All right. Tuesday, September 5th, uh, brought to you by Tech GC. Here we are. We're here. Andy's plant is missing. The plant is MIA. Hey, man, you're not getting you're not getting Tech GC its money's worth here without that plant. Man. You're right. Plant. Let me get it. Let me get the plant back. <laughs> Here we are. Hey, what's up? We're here. Summer ah, break. Yes. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm tired. Are, are the Orioles in play for the playoffs? Big time. They're very good. Yeah, yeah for the I, first I time in a long time. That's what I thought. I, um, I don't want to you know, be a little arrogant here, but uh, the Braves are doing pretty good. I saw the Braves play the Red Sox a few weeks ago. It was good. The Braves are, you know, I it, it's really strange because I've always been a... Uh, like I was a Marlins fan. I grew up in Miami and then I lived in DC for a long time and sort of like embraced the Nats. It's hard not to embrace the Braves here, man. Like it's like, yeah. it's just, it, it, you know, it, it, everybody gives a shit about the Braves, but anyway, they're doing pretty good. I so. wish they would fix the name, you know, like the, the, the Washington football team changed its name, like yeah. long overdue. Yeah. Some of these teams need to fix their names. I love, you know, I love the pride in the organization. I'm happy for that. Yeah. But like, Doing a tomahawk chop and and all that stuff's got to go. Good. All that stuff's got to go. I also think like some clarity about what Braves means would be important because I think sure. the Boston Braves, which is the original Braves, like Brave was about I think Tammany Hall and like the like like it was political. I don't actually think it was what it's become, uh-huh. which is like obviously like this Native American undertone, right. which are not my favorite. But um, yeah, and the, and what's interesting too, to your point about the Braves. The Atlanta Braves is that like the logo doesn't really have. I mean, it's just an A. So like we could change our name. I think pretty uh-huh. easily. Pretty easily. I'm, yeah. And I say we like if I'm an owner of the Braves, like the Atlanta <laughs> Braves could change their name pretty easily. I don't think it'd be that weird. To your point about the Washington football team, what are they called now? The, the, the Commanders. The Commanders, right? Honestly, man, that's a lame name, and they should have stayed as the Washington football team. That was a really cool name for a football team. Like yeah. the Washington <laughs> football team with a big W on it is yeah. just cool. Like, why do you? I agree. What like, was wrong with it? There was literally, it was an incredible name for a football team. Like, they messed that up. Like, that. Well, anyway. look, I lived in that area for a while. That team and that organization, and then we'll get to Elise, <laughs> our guest, in a second. But the last yeah. point is, that organization is about as ineffective and bad as you're ever going to come. So like pretty much every decision they make is terrible. It's so bad. dude. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's such a shame because like, it's a shame besides the Dallas Cowboys and maybe the Steelers, I would say like, they've got the most obsessive following I've ever seen. Like I lived in Washington DC for a long time. Yeah. People love that football team. And it's like, and it's millions and millions of people and hope um, and hope springs eternal every fall. And you on the radio, they're like, this is the year. This is the year we got Donovan McNabb. And I, and I'm like, you know, re, re, I'm, I'm driving and I'm just laughing. Like you got Donovan, Donovan McNabb, McNabb in the twilight of his career. You know, like Donovan McNabb, dude, yeah. you're like deep in the trenches. There, there you man. go. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, someone who's, who's much better than McNabb is Elise Howlick, yes, man. The, C, the CPO at, uh, at Intuit, and I met her when she was at MasterCard. You guys work um, together at MasterCard, or no? Yeah, and and for a short time, but enough time to know how good she is. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. which was which was easy to suss out. Yeah, what um, I really, really like about her leader. is like she knows the theoretical stuff really well, but she's pragmatic, man. Yeah, like, really. she's like, how do we how do we do things? How do we solve things? How do we fix things? How do we make things better? Like her lens through which she goes to work is 
asking those questions. And I think that that is part of why she's so successful. I want to read you something. This is a quote from the CISO at, that she works with at Intuit. The biggest strength that I've seen is her ability to really translate a lot of complex legal issues into business decisions that we can make together and make trade-offs. What else is are you is this in the New York Times? Uh, this is an interview or something. But like, what else is there? That's the yeah. thing right there. Yeah. Well, this is it. I was just being facetious, but like, yeah, I, I think that's exactly that's right. And, and then that, that's a much better way to say what I was saying, which is like, she's just sort of like get a get it done type of person. Amazing, but with the knowledge and know how, right? Um, and look into it where she works is an interesting company, man. Like Very. they've got a lot of different things going on. Um, I'll tell you a fun Intuit story, and then we can we can jump to at least sure. like, um. As I, I don't know what the right trailblazery as this is going to sound like my parents, their biggest obstacle to doing their income taxes was language for many mm -hmm. years, for many mm -hmm. years. Right. Like my mom and my stepdad, like our primary Spanish speakers and like tax software is hard to use for me. And I went to the University of Florida Law School, which is the best tax law school in the country. Right. And I took income taxation with one of the best professors professors in the world and like turbo not that turbo tax is hard to use but all like tax jargon is hard like yeah. tax is hard yeah imagine trying to translate tax decision making in from one language to another it's really hard point is turbo tax went spanish years ago there has been a spanish version of the offering and you would think oh lots of software and lots of SaaS offerings do that false okay like that's not true and like their spanish version of their uh of, of the tax solution is like excellent because I had to do the reverse with my stepdad, which was um, to help him do his own taxes. Mm -hmm. I had to help him in Spanish. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, it's hyper usable. Right. And I'm Spanish is my, my original language, but it's not my primary language. And so mm -hmm. like, I'm doing the reverse of what my dad used to do and just saw how hard it is to try to like translate a tax process in your mind while you're doing your taxes. And so shout out to TurboTax and Intuit for making the Spanish a free version uh, also um, of, of, of tax prep software. I love that. And I love, first of all, uh, you obviously love any software that makes something usable for everybody. Or people, yeah. <laughs> people in general. And then to, to be able to do that um, for, for people. For, for 60 with million people. Language, language variability is so important. And you're right. You're like, SaaS platforms do not automatically do language conversion. It's really hard. I've actually considered it. We've considered it at a bunch of companies I've been in. It's actually really difficult. It's, it's yeah. not simple at all, especially with yeah. tax, I have to imagine. But what's cool is into it is TurboTax. It's Credit Karma. It's it's um, uh, Mailchimp. Quick, but Mail like yeah. people don't know the products underneath the umbrella. Like a lot going on. It's there. a lot. So super interesting and um, great conversation. Yeah, let's do it. Here we are. We did it. We're here. I don't think we're we off to it. a good start, Andy. I don't. I don't like you making fun of uh, my candle on. at ten a.m. in the morning. <laughs> Elise Halleck is our guest. Is uh good I question think is like what is it it's like happy birthday is what it's called i don't remember it smells good though okay. is it birthday cake is it your birthday no it's not birthday cake i know i hate that smell it's too sweet this is it's just happy birthday but like adult happy birthday so it's very refined 
<laughs> sure. We just took a left turn right away. <laughs> oh wait, not okay. Never mind. Go ahead. Uh, my my Eddie, birthday. Next question. My birthday was <laughs> yes. two two days ago. My birthday was two days ah, ago. Yeah. Happy See birthday. That? I lit you a candle, and then you were making fun of me. That's not I right. No, I know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I feel uh, like I, like your video quality gets worse by the second. By the way, you are a box of pixels for me right now. Me? Well, you just ignore yeah, me. You, you, don't, don't, you don't need to look. I don't at want to look at anyway. So <laughs> All right, uh, Elise is our guest. Uh, t- so you're at the beach. That's cool. Tell us where you are. I am. I am. So we go every year to North Wildwood, New Jersey. So Jersey shoring it up. Getting my GTL going, um, nice. minus the T. I use like SPF 9 million, so no T. <laughs> Just a lot but of laundry and going to the gym. The this sounds awful. Yeah, <laughs> right. Living the dream. Yeah. That's a great vacation. Well, we go here every- What'd you do on vacation, man? I did Before a lot of laundry and went to the gym. A lot of laundry, yeah. <laughs> well, is the weather nice? Is it still like, because down it's here it's gorgeous. 100 degrees. No. Yeah, no, fine. it's super breezy because the ocean's great. The water's nice. warm. We go every year. We're doing it a little bit later than normal. So like all summer, it's been like summer vacation is coming. Summer vacation is coming. Now it's here. It will pass in like 5.2 seconds if history is oh, any. <laughs> well, well I'm, thanks for hanging out with us on your summer vacation. I'm sure there's many, many Happy things you could have been doing right now that don't involve <laughs> me and Andy. So. <laughs> Well, I was going to sort of ask something like that. When you get away like this, are you able to detach from from work and or like what's going on in the privacy world? Are you able to do that? Yeah, I think, you know, now, yes. I think early on in my career, I was like, oh, my God, the world's going to fall apart without me. And I feel like the older I get, the more I'm like, yeah, it'll probably be fine. Um, but I think, you know, I've got I've got a lot going on right now work-wise, uh, but it's all to my benefit, right? So I'm I'm in the midst of recruiting and hiring and whatnot, and I did not want two weeks to cut into that and then have everybody wait. So we're still interviewing, doing that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm lucky enough that I have a team, right? Not everybody can say that, but I do. And and so to be able to trust them to to run with stuff, you know, lives are not going to be lost. You know that those that, emails, those 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 life saving emails we send every day. That's right, right. The groundbreaking Excel spreadsheet. A whole week without the the GDPR tracker being updated, you, the whole sky's going to fall. I don't know. I certainly <laughs> hope not at this point. But I will say it's been interesting because when I'm together with my family, this kind of stuff comes up all the time, right? Like mm-hmm. my dad is getting some kind of email. You know, whether it's asking him for, you know, his social security number so that the IRS can give him this magic $46,000 that, you know, is just waiting or, you know, we're trying to download an app. There's there's a boardwalk here. It's relatively famous if you're in the area. On the boardwalk, they have a tram car to ride you from one end to the other. They've just introduced a mobile app. Pay for your tram car tickets on your mobile app, this and that. And I just, you know, of course, I'm like the geek. They're like, oh, let me see what the sign-in process looks like. <laughs> right. So I don't 100% shut it off. But at least if something's happening to me, it's of my own doing. You, know, you, you shared that? a really you shared a really important insight when at, when you started responding to Andy's question, which is like coming to terms with the relatively like 
low impact of your absence. Right. I, mm, I mean, I, I, I think like, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, that's, that's like, th- th- like two things I think are in play there. One, if, if we're, none of us are individual contributors, but if we were um, like super low impact when you're out of the office, as long as you're like, if you're a good employee or a good worker or a good contributor, the evidence of that is how smooth things operate when you're not there. I'm being yeah. serious. Like a lot of people yeah. think, oh my God, if I'm not there, I'm, I'm going to be seen and look less relevant. But I think it's actually the opposite. Like if you like have a really good solid situation at the job, a week or two of your absence, things should continue to run fairly stably because you've been sharing information and resources and yeah. being a collaborator and people will understand how to make up for your loss and get you caught up when you get back. I think as a manager, it's even more true. Like, are you creating like, DNA inside your team that sort of like um, makes you like less critical to the day to day business of the team. And that that to me, like when I go on vacation, if my team fell apart, I'd be really stressed out that I'm a terrible leader because yeah. like, my actual function is to like resource the team, solve problems and plan for the future. And like, none of those things mean I can't go on a vacation. Right. Like, <laughs> right. right. So like right. what I'm hearing from you is like, you've found comfort in being absent. And I think that's really, really important. And then the last thing I'll say is like, we also need to set a good example. I'm actually not that good at this. And I'm getting better at it, which is like not checking my email when I'm out, not chiming in when I'm away. Because if you do it as the leader, I think people feel pressure to do it. And that's not fair. People need to be able to disconnect and do what you're doing. Go on the Jersey Shore and like do laundry or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. That laundry has got to get done. So, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but I, I, the role modeling piece is huge for me. It really is because it, it comes off as, you know, insincere or whatnot. I'm constantly, Oh, take your time, take your leave. It's really important. You know, if for no other reason, don't leave money on the table, right? If you lose vacation, what, what was the point of that? Um, but particularly for me in this role where I'm, I've just crossed over my one year anniversary. I'm about a year and a month. Yes. In. Um, they have to learn me. They have to learn who I am. And for me to say, well, please take your vacation, but then I never do it. It's hard. They don't know me for years the way other teams have in other roles and whatnot. And they don't understand, you know, sometimes I'll check something, but it's, you know, maybe it's to preserve my own sanity, right? There's a difference between having to be plugged in and having to be on top of things and answer all the things in the way that maybe like I'll clear out my inbox as much as I can in the morning very quietly by myself so that I don't have 70,000 messages when I get back. Um, but showing people how, like, go away, we're going to be fine is essential. How'd you do that? Like with... um joining you know a year ago a big organization with the team already in place how did you like allow them to get to know you know you as a person that says okay like opening up about something you know so much so much so that it's that you're able to say something like you know i'm checking this for my sanity it's not because i want you to respond on saturday i I don't how did you think that through and joining the new organization i i think Initially, you'll have to like ask them how this went off. In my mind, this is how this happened, right? Uh, I tried to not do it, right? Or to do it in a way that was extremely quiet. You know, if I was doing something on the weekend, make it very clear that they weren't seeing or any of that behavior, because I think that sets the tone the wrong way right from the start. But then even over time, it can be as easy as just saying so. When you start a message, 
I don't need you to look at this until Monday could be the subject. And then let's go. It's not that hard, right? So just be very, very upfront and then reinforce that. There are going to be times when, yeah, sorry, I got to bug you. But then I'm like, then I'm calling you, you know, then I'm, I'm not like, oh, I hope you see this slack. You know, something's going on that I need your attention on. So I think the habit initially of not bothering people and sort of setting that rhythm on the early, early days, but then following up very quickly with just overtly saying, hey, this is something that I need to get out of my brain onto whatever it is, this piece of paper, this email, whatnot. You you can look at this later and you actually don't even need to respond until after that. You know, this is when I need something. I think a lot of confusion in this space comes from people just not saying when they need something, why they need something. I agree with that a lot. Pedro, you're a, you're a big proponent of that, of direct communication, <laughs> just yeah. direct communication about what you need or what you need from someone. I think yeah. to, your, to your point, Elise, as long as you're like reasonable and kind and, and thoughtful about how you ask for something, it should be direct. Yeah. And it, it's not sharp elbows if you're being direct. Like, I, I think there's like fear around, well, if you're too direct, you come off as a jerk. That's not true. Like if you if you curate your message and you're gentle about your directness, I don't think it's <laughs> off putting. Uh, but but what I do think that I was going to make a point and Andy, you sort of like kicked it off, which is the reverse of what we're saying, which is when you're absent, be truly absent is when you're present, be present all the way. Right. Like that is the important other side of this. Like. I'm pretty disciplined about not working late at night unless there's a work emergency or something really, really important is happening or something really you know, critical that can't wait, needs to get done, which is pretty rare to Meta's credit. Like, you know, we, we're, we're pretty like forward looking and don't have a lot of unless there's something external driving urgency, a lot of internal right. thrash in that way, which is which is, I think, a testament to the company. But like. Um, but the nine or 10 hours or so that I'm on throughout the day, like I'm all the way on. I'm extremely responsive. I'm making sure that I'm like communicating and attending meetings and being present in those meetings, even if it's like mm -hmm. the sixth meeting about the fucking thing for the 10th time. <laughs> you, know, you know, like be present and, you know, like make the like your contributions felt um, while you're working is also super important. Um, and, and it's harder than it sounds because like, if you're in a meeting, if you, if I go to three meetings to, today after this, I have three meetings in a row after this. And if I'm checking email and messaging the whole time I'm in those meetings, like, why did I go to those meetings? Like, what, what yeah. like just so they can see my face and go like this in the zoom. Like that's not a real thing. So like being present when you're messaging, being present when you're drafting and reading email, being present when you're in meetings. And I mean, meaningfully present is also pretty yeah. important. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I would say the other thing I've got is varying levels of experience across the team, right? So I've got about, when we're fully staffed, we'll be about, like, say, a dozen, which I think is fantastic, yeah, right? I've, I've worked at places where, where we've had armies and armies of people, and I don't know how effective that is. I've been a one-man band. Also, things can get done, but it's a lot more challenging, better to have people. Rigorous prioritization. It is, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I've got people who are very, you know, early on in their careers, they haven't experienced that. They don't know. And I have to remember what it was like to be brand new to a company, brand new to an environment like that, brand new to being thrown into this meeting and that meeting and, you know, wanting to please your audience and say, absolutely, I'll get this done in 10 minutes. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. And then looking at your plate and going, oh, my God, I can't get that done. And 
learning how to show up when you are being present and what you're committing to, because people will take you at your word. And for them, that's one call. It's not one of six in a row that you just had. So learning to navigate that and then relying on my more senior people to model that along with me, right? There's a way to be successful here. This is how we do it. And being very mindful and very intentional about what you're committing to, what you're not committing to, how you're trying to look at your week coming up. You know, what did I promise I would get done by Friday? Is that even possible? Do I have to pull people in to help me? Or do I have to kind of suffer in silence on my own and figure my way out of the mess? I prefer the former, you know, but until you learn how to do that, you you forget early days in your career, how much you feel personally responsible for things. At a company like yours, um, that has sort of, I mean, there are a lot of financial products, but like not all of them. And also like just like a diverse portfolio of yeah. products means there's going to be a lot of diverse and disparate privacy issues. There's going to be a lot of overlap too, but there's going to be a lot of different things that you face. Like at Meta, it's the same thing. Like, you know, the issues on WhatsApp are not the same as the issues on Instagram, but there is some overlap anyway. Um so this mindful presence and this mindful absence, which I loved both of those concepts. Um, how do you sustain the mindful presence part in the context of like the type of toggling I'm sure you have to do from, I don't know, your morning meeting, which is about product X and privacy issues one, two, and three. And then your afternoon meeting, which is about product Y and privacy issues 11, 12, and 13, right? Like how do you make... How do both of you like maintain sort of like that very like hyper presence in the work when you have to toggle so often? So just That's be- hard for me. B- Elise, before you answer the the products, the main yeah. products for Intuit, TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and Mailchimp, and and potentially others yeah. like like. That's your point, Pedro. Like, there's a lot of different products. Like, those are cool so products. I'm, I mean, I'm they, totally, yeah, them, totally curious same. about Pedro's question, but I wanted everyone to hear the, yeah, the yeah. differences yeah. in those products. Yeah, absolutely. B2B, B2C, different type exactly. of issues. I would say, you know, in an odd way, you do have to remember a lot to do that kind of toggling, but being very present, being very mindful, really absorbing what's going on when you're having these conversations helps us find the commonalities, right? So if I'm thinking about privacy and an approach to managing and handling data, there's 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 a lot that's the same, right? It's applying it or directing it in a different way across these different products and these different instances. And my key job here is to not reinvent the wheel every time a question comes up, right? So if I am aware that product A is doing X, Y, and Z with identity data or something like that. And I hear something else pop up later in the day on product C. And they're like, well, we're kind of toying with an identity. Like, can we do it in a way that will work for both? Can we find a way that, you know, sort of is at an enterprise level? Sometimes the answer is no. And you've got to do a little bespoke thing. But like, chances are, there's a product team working in isolation over here that has no idea that the other product team is working on a similar type of thing. And we are often the connectors in the room. We're in all of those rooms the way the product teams don't have a natural touch point to come together. So for me, that's essential. And sort of thinking, well, are you aware that this work is happening here? Or are you aware that operationally on the tech side, we were planning to do this type of thing that could solve both of your problems? Do you have time to wait for that to happen? 
What's your timeline like? You know, and then you have that conversation where you're trying to find what's in common. So we're not constantly running at all the different questions every time one pops up. I love the angle you're coming at it from, which is like the angle of sort of like a product council across a large suite of products. Whereas in my mind, I'm sitting here going, yeah, and 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 she's also protecting herself from having to rewrite the privacy policy 900,000 times a year. You know, it's also like there's a, definitely some self-preservation going on in there. A little bit. A little bit. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I am not ashamed. <laughs> well, so it's, it's better for the customers too, right? Like yeah. if that's the statement that they're looking to and relying on to understand how we do what we do, not a great experience if like, oh wait, oh you didn't you didn't read this one. Right. Or you you didn't read the one that came out last week versus this week. Like that can't work. Yeah. At uh you d- so there's like this diff- lot of differences between the products at Intuit. Also, uh, in your role at MasterCard, like you were also covering <laughs> that. You know, I know personally from working there for for a period of time. Like, there's just a lot. Like, there's just a lot of different products, even more than the four we're talking about there in terms of what. Yeah. So, how did you feel? Like, I guess was that sort of a good training ground for for this job in that in that way? It feels like you were covering everything at, at at from a privacy perspective at Mastercard. Yeah, you know, I, over time for sure, right? You know, and and initially I was brought in there to do. Uh, a very intentional focus on sort of North American activities, right? And so like, think about that already. That's an organization that's so big that you could just divide up the world and have different teams responsible for different geographies. But then you start to have products and services where the ambition at launch is to be in all the places possible from day one, right? So then it's not I can't look at this thing just from a North American lens. I can't look at this thing from, you know, eventually I had Western Hemisphere, like Latin America and Central America, you know, the Caribbean. Um, then you're like, okay, well, then what is the approach? What what can we do from day one to kind of cover the globe, quite literally, as much as possible? And then then what you're focusing are the tweaks and the refinements. Okay, if you want to launch in Singapore, you know, we're going to do all the things we're already doing, but don't forget you have to add this sentence, this disclosure, report to this authority, whatever it happens to be. But I think it really drove home the point of having that, you know, they called it a global approach as much as possible. And even if that meant doing eh, maybe a little bit more than you were required to, either the laws are going to evolve to the point where you're going to have to do it eventually, so you might as well talk about it now, or to scale. Everything's about scaling, right? Yeah. And and it is really hard to go back to a tech team and say, if you really want to go to Australia, I need you to create a whole new tech stack. I need you to, you know, change the UX. I need you to fit this build in along with all the other things you were planning on doing, right? Like at some point, you know, you just have to say, this is how we're doing this. So... Intuit has become like a huge company. Like I, I, I always in my head, you know, my first experience with the co- company was TurboTax 500 years ago when I used to do my own returns. You know, I'm like a college kid working at Best Buy doing his own uh-huh. tax return or whatever. Um, but now like it's such a big company. I think I, I looked the other day and I think it's like 18, 17 or 18,000 employees, something insane yeah. like that. Um, all over the, I'm guessing all over the world. Uh, like, 
on the privacy side, we always talk about scaling like our product support. And Andy and I, because we're mm -hmm. product people, are always hyper-focused and uh, talk a lot on the podcast about like the product side of privacy, right? Yeah. But like the yeah. employee side, when a company oh, explodes yeah. in size the way, uh, excuse me, not the employee side, the internal side, including employee data, <laughs> when a company explodes at in a good way, like in size and scales and, and, and through acquisition and just growth just gets big from one day to the next or in a short period of time. Like, how do you scale the internal privacy program? Because I feel like the value prop for that for the business is probably harder to sell um, than like making the products flashier and easier to market. Like, how do you scale that as as aggressively as you have to to like meet minimum standards? I think you know for me and and this was this was part of the calculus of 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 jumping over and and starting with intuit the the longer I do this, the more I find that companies with a real strong culture are much more amenable to my privacy messaging than companies that are a little bit more you know do what you got to do, get it done. We'll figure it out later, you know, that kind of thing. And so the mission of this company right now is very, very strong. It's been, we're 40 years old. We just celebrated our 40th anniversary, right? So not a brand new baby company, not one that's been around for a hundred years, right? But a pretty solid presence. And really from day one, they've been very, very proud about sort of centering on the customer's problems focusing on what the customer needs. Um, you can start to see the parallels to sort of focusing on the individual, prioritizing their information. And then you can expand that to then that matters with your information too as an employee. And we care about you and we care about how you're managing things. And every single person here has a role in the success of the company, right? And if that's true, then I care about how everybody at the company manages, handles data, right? It's not about, oh, this is the product team's responsibility, right? Something is going to happen where you need information, you want to use information, you want to analyze things, you want to do things that are either in support of the product or in support of some other thing that the company is trying to accomplish. And once that happens, then I'm in the door. And so for me, then it comes down to, are we bringing in people when we have the opportunity with the right mindset, which the company kind of takes care of through the interview process and making sure that they're very clear about the company's mission and what they're trying to accomplish. We have a pretty rigorous interview process that takes people through that. I get to sweep in with what you would normally expect, right? Everybody's got to take the corporate privacy training, right? I, you know, everyone has sits through that, that, that PowerPoint, you know, for, 20 minutes, uh, uh, you know, going over things, trying to make that something that certainly ticks off the boxes for understanding the legal requirements, but is not a CLE. Like, I don't need to teach the workforce the nuances of the GDPR. <laughs> to me, that's like, that's a slide. No, you, you don't do that every day. You don't that. have a three-hour meeting, <laughs> yeah, a daily three-hour meeting. Yeah. Article for, yeah, no, no, I will lose them, right? They need to know there are laws out there that exist that will impact what they're doing and that when a question comes up, they need to come to my team. But what's more important is they need to understand that they personally have a role to play in protecting this data. Whatever they're doing all day, every day, everybody at this company does. And so, you know, 
the way I like to think about it is I have 17,000 people on my team. I don't actually, that'd be a delight, but you know, <laughs> but everyone does. Everyone has a role to play on it. This is not a thing for my team to just handle for the company. It is not something that just the product people have. People in finance, people doing reporting, people doing disclosures, everybody's got a role to play in it. Um, and then I think the last piece of the puzzle there is, and that even comes down to your personal information that you give us to be an employee here. Like we're really trying to look at that end to end. And if all of my messaging up to that point doesn't get you, I hope that that last bit does. How right? do you create, the how do you create culture? How do you create the culture around privacy? You know, all, most of the organizations you've been in have been, have been pretty big. So like, how do you yeah. do that? I know how I do it in a small org. It's a lot easier and it's a lot more yeah. like I can do a lot of things intentionally on Slack and with stickers and swag and I can start yeah. to instill culture. You could probably do that at a big company too, but it's, it's, I'm wondering, have you thought about that? Particularly now you've stepped in as CPO, you know, it's, it's a, maybe a different animal. I think, I think there are a couple of natural opportunities that you just don't want to waste, right? So look, there's International Data Privacy Day, which obviously I celebrate privately, publicly. <laughs> I'm out there, right? It's a big day. We all do. For me. Yeah. Obviously. Um, I'll get my own privacy day candle and then we'll be, we'll be good to go. That's what would this, wait, what would the scent, what, what would the scent, scent be? I, I know, don't know. I know. Something calming. I need a little, I, little zen, a little bit of I like privacy that. bed with a, like, with like a little bit of black pepper, like just a pinch of chaos. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> a little, a little chaos. I like it. Yeah. Uh, but, I, but I, you know, no kidding. Right. I have a built in day. Look, there are days for everything, right? There's a national hot dog day. There's a national whatever, but there is a day for privacy. And it's the same time every year. And if I'm not planning on a fireside chat and a blog and something to tie in the fact that, hey, this is happening around the world and not for nothing, this lines up with how we do our products, how we do our business, why this matters. I have a week to talk about it. I made it two weeks last week or last year, I should say, you know, I mean, like that is an opportunity. There are other uh -huh. opportunities, you know, cybersecurity awareness month is October. Our, our information security team has stuff all month long. It is a missed opportunity if I do not have some kind of event in that context. But then where I've really started to work with the team here, um, and I, again, I can't emphasize this enough. So good to have a team that is so fired up about trying to make this a part of the culture, right? Because they're coming with ideas. I'm coming with ideas. Um, but we have, we have things called, you know, global engineering days. So two weeks a year where the engineers can put aside their day-to-day -day work and then just brainstorm or create on a new product for a week. And there are different teams that will do demos over the course of the week. They'll have booths set up at the office, come and look at this product experience we're working on or whatnot. Um, it is a miss if we don't have something going on during engineering days, right? So you got to find the points at the company where there's already something going on. Um, but then also we're constantly thinking about like, like, does the world need another newsletter? TBD on that one. I'm not sure, right? Because there are many teams that have newsletters and some of them I look at, and I'm like, wow, that was really valuable. And some of them I promise 
I will get to at some point, right? So how do you find the right balance for something like that? Going to meetings, talking to people. Everyone has how many town halls, team meetings, touch points. You know, hey, I would love to come and chat with your team about how we can work better with you. That's your door in, right? It's not like, oh, I'd love to come and tell you about, you know, Pipita reform. No. Or or the all-time favorite. <laughs> I would love to come and sharpshoot your organization and tell you all things you're doing wrong. People really right. like that one. People right? really but, like I mean, that one. But if you open the door, I think in a very genuine way to, look, we work with you all the time. Can we do things better? What, what kind of things are you seeing that maybe we don't see? You know, here's something we heard of that might be interesting to you. But that I means you've got to think about it. You've got to have information and bring it to the table. I want to shout this advice from the rooftops. Like for everybody, <laughs> this is like some of the most important stuff that I've learned in my career from from small to large organizations. It's really, really important. Pedro, you referred to it once in one of our prior conversations as as like the the idea of going to to talk to someone to see how you can help with them, help them in any way, is yeah. the ultimate way to build connection in a workplace. No matter like take everything out of it. You know, every other you know, being in the fire together, doing something really difficult. Yes, that's a good way to, but just really saying like, this is what I do on a day-to-day basis. What do you do on a day-to-day basis? What's bothering you? How can I help? How can we help each other? Uh, it's so simple, but, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't happen automatically. The most valuable work salutation is how can I be helpful? Like, it, like no one that entered a room in the history of corporations who led that way was thrown out ever, ever. Right. And so like, if you just, it's, it's not, you know, social engineering. It, it, if you genuinely just want to be helpful, people will find ways for you to be that way. And it might be, uh, we got this and that's fine. Right. Like that's fine too. But like the next time you knock on the door, it'll open. And like, I think that's really important. Like having a basis of collaboration as, uh, excuse me, yeah, a a foundation of collaboration as the basis for how you engage at work, I think is really, is really, really important. That doesn't mean be a pushover either. And that doesn't mean Mm. like not to make clear when there are things that need to be done. But even in that there's craft work involved, like very rarely is it ever necessary to be aggressive or firm, right? Like if it's just very rarely, like there's, there is a place for it here and there, but it's so rare, right? Where I think like law school, lawyering, litigation, disputes, there's a tendency to be like, well, the easiest way to get to a solution here is to argue. And like, I just don't think that's true in almost any context. And like just avoiding that has been something that over the course of my career I have gotten better at and as and what I've seen is that my productivity and ability to contribute at meaningful ways has increased I don't know maybe I'm just idealistic no I think like in the in-house environment in particular though we're quite literally on the same team like we yeah, all work right. for the same company right <laughs> like there's no need to have sort want- of <laughs> or challenge. like I'm trying to get this done too like how do we do this yeah. And and I'm all what I'm doing is bringing my perspective, which may or may not carry the day. But at least, you know, if I come and I'm informed and I take the time to understand where someone else is coming from. To your point, I think we can work it out. Yeah. I think the reality is true 
but the way the media depicts or TV shows depict the corporate environment or the law firm environment, you know, you would think the complete opposite when you sit on the outside. If you watch suits, like the, the lawyers that work with each other are like walking in and throwing documents at each other, you know, and in a corporate, you don't setting. walk into the meeting and the board <laughs> meeting and just throw documents. At the... Like if you, I mean, if you watch succession, you know, it's just like, it's just not a realistic way to do things. And, and I um... thought succession was a documentary. So now I'm really upset. I, I really upset. But it's you close to home for you. Yeah. 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 Okay. But you know, Andy, it's, it's interesting you say that. So last night I went to dinner with one of my great friends and, uh, uh, I got to be really careful here. They are a prosecutor at one of the large uh, uh, prosecutorial offices in Georgia, and we were having a conversation about an, a you know a defense counsel that that they have to face that is extremely adversarial um, and sort of just like jerk and like there's a case, there's a client who's in jail, and this client is just sitting in jail, and the reason for that is that that client's lawyer is an asshole. <laughs> it's literally, that's the reason this guy's in jail. Because every time he talks to the, you know, to the district attorney's office, nobody wants to work with him because he's a jerk. It, the theater of it might look great when he's in the courtroom and he's banging his hands on the mm. desk and saying justice and freedom and the constitution. But like most of the work actually happens via email and text in the background and negotiating yeah. and doing all the things. And nobody takes his calls because he's a, he's a jerk. And so like, there's a poor guy sitting in jail for no reason. And well, not for no reason. He's in jail because he did something bad, but sitting in jail longer than he has to uh, for no reason. And it's because their lawyer is a confrontational, like, suits, Game of Thrones, whatever. <laughs> I don't know, whatever it is. You know, it's just not the way, man. Well, at least I'm curious, right? Like, you know, big organization, lots of personalities, more surface area for there to be, yeah. you know, individuals that that challenge you. So how have you, like, mostly I think I'm asking like how have you counseled your team because a lot of it at this point is sort of like I get this question a lot if someone's being really challenging or really difficult instead of us stepping into that for them and stepping in and just taking it away you know sometimes it's got to be what's the balance between you finishing the project or, or working with this person or getting over the hump how have you thought about that too you know, I think a lot about that, particularly with lawyers, right? And 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 like, so go back to the root of it all. This is my theory, at least. Law school is designed from day one and for three years for you to spend all of your time saying, look at me, I know all the things. Oh, I know gosh. all the things, call on me. I know the answer. I know all the answers. I know the answer if someone else doesn't know it. Here, <laughs> here I am again. I got this. I know this. I know that. I know that. I know that. And then you go out into the world and you have to learn really, really fast. A, people take it as a you know baseline expectation. They're like, oh, I sure hope you know the things. Exactly. <laughs> they don't care. It's not about you. It's not about you anymore. You've got to sit there and be quiet and listen and find out what's going on and try to understand where people are coming from. And imagine i mean we've all been through it we were all trained to be like look at me i got the thing i know the thing you should call on me i'm the one and you get very quickly into an organization whether it's a firm in-house other circumstances you can be a lawyer in eight million different ways your number one job is to find out what is going on to ask people questions to learn 
where they're coming from and not jump to, oh, I know the, where you're headed and I'm going to tell you why that's wrong or that's right. And I feel like once you get into that rhythm, even someone who's being difficult is coming from some kind of perspective. And if you can kind of take that hit and say, okay, well, tell me a little bit more about why this is problematic for you. Or, you know, oh, I've got a team here. I got pressure on me. I know that. I'm sure you're experiencing the same in your side. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to have to give a little bit here or a little bit there. Let's say you're having a negotiation or something difficult going on. So realistically speaking, like, where are we going to land? And then let's try to find a way there or something like that. And then you really have to sit down with people and say, okay, a lot of times this will happen. I don't necessarily hop in. I'm ready to do that if things get escalated, but I, I find it much more productive to talk to the person who's having the challenge on the team and play it out. Okay, well, what are they saying? Why are they saying that? Where are they coming from? How would we respond to that? Have you thought about answering it this way? Have you asked about this? And do it in a real safe way where like sometimes even I'll suggest something and then, you know, the act of saying something out loud, you're like, oh, that that does not sound good. I don't know why <laughs> I... You know, and just yeah. know that and be like, do that, try this, go back. And then also watching it unfold enough to know when to be like, look, they're wasting our time now. You know, and I, I think, you know, sometimes it's effective to go back to the business team and, and sort of say, hey, look, I want this project to happen. We're here. We're at the table. We're trying. Um, I can't seem to get past counsel on the other side. You may want to talk to your counterpart and see what's going on there. Like, there's always a reason, right? But other than that, usually there's something motivating it, and you got to figure out what that is. You're hitting on some really important themes that, like, I think about quite often, which is, like, going back to your point about how law school is designed and, like, the persona you take on when you attend law school. Like, law school creates the illusion, I think, that you're becoming an expert at something while you're there. (laughs) And that is not true. You actually are not becoming an expert at anything. Like you are essentially developing a working knowledge of like how the law is applied, created, and, uh, you know, uh, and uh, how justice works. Um, But you really walk out of law school with sort of like foundational preliminary notions about things. You don't actually walk out, you know, being... Chimerinsky on con law. Like that's not who you are when you walk out of law school. Okay. Uh, So, so, but, but it does create the illusion that you know things. And I think that's problematic. Law school would serve the service all much better if it really emphasized the fact that like what we're creating in law school is beginners. We're creating beginners. Don't know anything. Teach the art of asking questions instead of the art of making declarations and sort of like help new attorneys, law students, lawyers to be sort of like develop a working knowledge and a framework from which to become beginners, right? And and like enter a a work, a a profession that is very much experience-based. Like that, that, this is the profession we're in. This is why like the gray hair is valuable and we have all the memes because like it's a symbol that you've been around a long time. You've seen the things, like you operate not just through some know-how, but through some experiential training that makes you able to solve problems. The last point I'll say, and you hit this, and I'm just going to say it in like sort of like my way, which is like the way to solve problems is to not not to give directions. Like that's not it. 
the way to solve problems is through introspection and like sort of like fostering inquiry. Like, how can we do this better? And expertise is actually the enemy of that, in my opinion. There's a tension there. You have to have enough expertise to identify the problem and understand like what the challenges are, et cetera. But then you have to like let go of like how you did it last time and make sure that like the way you solve for the thing now is actually optimized. And it may have changed where I think like expertise can become rigid and be like, all right, this is the answer. Go find the checklist, go through the checklist and repeat. Like that's actually for that, that formulaic approach to the, to the, to like legal problem solving, I actually think is inefficient and mostly ineffective over time. Like it loses its utility over time. Like frameworks need to be reinvented constantly um, and approaches need to be rethought or else you like sort of become stagnant. Interested if you guys totally disagree with me. Or even no, no, Pedro. And I think you're highlighting something Elise said at the beginning, which is like it also creates the like the important distinction or tension or whatever you want to call it between when you're in a big company and you're trying to have the same principles across multiple products that are different. To, to, to know the exact point or the point when you have to deviate, because you can you can. You know, you may, yeah, I forget how you said it, but you said it eloquently. Like the the trick, I think, or the the the, the mastery in kind of being a, a product counselor or a CPO at, at that level is sort of like I've got the universe in front of me, and we're trying to make the universe similar with the knowledge that we have or the knowledge we've acquired. But like ultimately, along comes nuance, and then you have to be able to to pick a, at that one piece and go, okay, now we've reached the moment where we do have to do this product differently or we have to sure as hell consider really hard how to do something different. So I'm curious, Elise, like, you know, is that is uh, of the sort of core masterclass CPO tenants that you have, this has to be one of them, right? Like, where do I, how, when do I identify the nuance and how do we like get the team to, to do that too? I think, you know, some of it comes from like, we, we all, we know the areas that are, going to be more operationally challenging than others, right? And typically they come down to, you know, privacy is all about what are you telling people ahead of time so that they can make an informed choice about whether they want to share their information with you or not. That's it. Honestly, at the end of the day, are you giving them the right information so that they can decide if they want to share their information with you? And the legalities that get wrapped around that, you know, they'll manifest themselves in, you know, what does consent look like? What does your notice look like? What point in time in the flow? You know, all of those things are, are what ends up complicating geographies. I think the other piece also, you know, being on the lookout for, you know, the sort of ebb and flow of the conversation about localization and like whether, you know, if you've got global ambition, can that information come back to the mothership? Where is the mothership? What's the transfer yeah. mechanism? Things like that. But really beyond that, everywhere wants you to keep it secure. Everybody wants you to do what you say you're going to do, right? So if you're going to give people the choice to opt in, opt out, or whatever, you better have that functionality. Almost everywhere now has some layer of rights choices, you know, I'd like to see my data, I want to delete it, I want to do this or that, you know, and so I worry less about those kind of nuances, if it's 30 days versus 45 days, or, 
you know, we are aligning around a standard and, and, and trying to roll globally with that. And then if we have to, we'll have to remember that, you know, in geography X, now it's, it's a shorter time frame. Can we meet that? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but, the, but the kind of things that tend to clunk up things are always, I always find them, they're, they're very well-intentioned sentences in a regulation uh-huh. that if you could just sit down with someone and say, did you really mean that it, you know, when you wrote this, that we would never be able to check for like fraud? I feel like that's not where you were headed with this, but here we are with this sentence and, you know, how can we navigate around it? I think that's, that's where just remembering like that's your mental checklist when you've got it, you know, like what kind of notices are in our flow experience? What kind of, you know, decisions are we making about moving the data? The rest of it, like I said, it's pretty much consistent. I love the like first principles approach, you know, as a, as a privacy yeah. leader at the end of the day, what do you have? What are you left with? Right. And I think like yeah. some people in their, their early days of their, their legal career can get really caught up in the details and really caught up in all the things we've talked about before. Like, having to be an expert or focusing really hard on one aspect of something. But um, I really appreciate that sort of zoom out lens from, from leaders. It's really, it's really critical. I think we have to wrap up soon, but Pedro, you look like you had one more, you look like you had a comment. I always have comments, but you know, like I, I agree with what's been said. I, I do think that like we're in an interesting moment in privacy um, because there's this emergence of this new technology that like amorphously is called AI. But like, if you just think about user agents and like the unbelievable potential that they have, like chatbots, that, that, that technology is going to bring for the privacy compliance process. Like, you know, if we think creatively, instead of looking at them as like privacy challenges, as sort of like privacy enablers, there's a lot of potential here. The risks I see is that it's easy to do what's already been done if you're in a compliance or legal, you know, in a legal compliance role or if you're in a sort of like product compliance role because it's safe, right? Put up an ad blocker, ask for consent right. in like a text form way, disrupt the user experience and then come back and haggle the user later and try to get a win back. Like this is everybody's strategy. Right. This is everybody's strategy. But like, there's only so much of that you can do before it sort of like undermines itself. Right. And we all know that intuitively. And so looking at these new technologies that are emerging through this beginner's mindset, using your expertise to understand what the requirements are and trying to use new surfaces, new technologies to achieve them, I think is something we all have to do collectively and get really in, like energetic about, because just to stick with the ch- chat agent example, like I do see a future where one company that has many, many surfaces, think yours or mine, many, many surfaces, instead of having 65,000 consent and GDPR moments, just having an ongoing conversation with a chat agent that is helping you manage all of that for yourself on all the surfaces across the company, right? Like just an ongoing dialogue about your privacy that you're having with this corporation through an AI, right? That is facilitating your ability to A, understand, like you said, like what your options are and what your data is being used for and be make choices about that in ways that are less disruptive, less confusing. You can like, just imagine if you go through the constellation of choices at our two companies for data use, I'm sure it's going to be hundreds of decisions, right? If every, if there's one person that uses all of our products, they make hundreds of decisions about their data to use our products. Imagine if you're wondering about decision number four, how do you even trace your way back to that decision? How do you even remember when you made it? 
Now imagine if there's an AI agent tracking all of this for you and you can be like, hey, like, so why am I seeing this ad? And, and like, mm -hmm. what data are you using to see this ad? And then you have this whole conversation. Or, hey, I noticed you sent me an email yesterday. Like, what information did you use to decide that you were going to show me, send me that email marketing that product? And then your company can say, well, here's how we got to that thing. Like this, the potential to create yeah. cool, interesting things is right in front of us. The theme of beginner's mind, the theme of intellectual curiosity that like sort of your remarks have like brought to surface, I think is the most important way we're going to like leverage all this cool shit to <laughs> make the experience for users easier, better and more meaningful. And honestly, to like level up privacy and bring it into the 21st century, like that, yeah. this is sort of like my take. But I think, look, also, it's it's a chance. And I feel like this is very rare in our space. Actually shape the law. Right? Exactly. Like we, are, we are at a point where everyone, including the people who are writing these laws and regulations, are trying to figure this out. You don't you don't get to do that as much with, you know, banking law. Or, you know, family law or things like that, that look on hundreds of years of precedent and then they build and they build and they build. There's nothing to look at here. We're making it happen. And a lot of this is going to come through the products and services that we surface out into the world and the ways we choose to do things that the lawmakers and the policymakers are going to look at and then make their sentences later on. So it's, it's a cool time to be involved in this space in particular, because I actually do think we will, in designing thoughtful products and services and giving real value to consumers and respecting their data and not doing anything underhanded with it, if you can do that, it's just like we were talking before with role modeling, but it's at the big company level. You're out there, you're showing how it can be done. And could we have better laws that don't hamstring others down the road into making those kind of choices that have the endless consent lists and disclosures and notifications that put us in a bad spot to begin with. So I just think it's a really cool time to be working in this space.